Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a nihilistic sensibility in Scott McCulloch's novel Basin as his narrator grapples with his very flawed existence. So, Scott, welcome to 3C. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Dave. The opening, Chapter Zero, it's a grotesque return to life for the narrator. His stomach is pumped. He's been saved from drowning. But I'm just wondering, is this a birth of sorts? Quite possibly, yeah. I think in some regards as the narrative progresses it's an it's an affirmation of life well you've started on chapter zero is there any significance mm-hmm. to that to some extent yeah well it's um yeah and in, in the most um, basic and simplest sense it's you know it's starting from scratch should we be reading this novel metaphorically in that regard in terms of we're starting from scratch we're starting life from scratch and journeying forward Perhaps, and obviously the uh, the narrator is a very ambiguous cipher and conduit throughout the narrative as is. And I'm not sure if you picked up on this or not, David, but I'm sure you did, that there is questions throughout the book whether or not nar- the narrator who is, you know, referred to as figure is, is, you know, even alive or not. If this is some kind of afterlife, if this is some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of vision or some kind of overwhelmingly alive life. <laughs> I hadn't quite picked up on that, which sort of suggests the the challenge in reading this novel mm. or the layers that exist in this novel, because it's open to interpretation. I, I normally ask very conventional questions of authors, but we're not mm. so much in any one location. I had a sense of the teeming life that exists, and it reminded me of sort of a Southeast Asian feel, but then donkeys, palm trees, heat, factory chimneys, cicadas and termites. Mm -hmm. There's an abundance of life in all its forms around without any one specific location. That's something that I really wanted to try and nail from from the outset is this this abstraction of space or this abstraction of time and place, whereby it's set in in a specific place or loosely said, a specific, specific place with uh, with a particular conflict and so on. But uh, you know, I'm using the, the ancient names of the places and different histories inevitably dovetail and collide into one another. And, and what Lucas said is said, well, yeah, this is I know where you're where you're setting this. This is somewhere within the Eastern Bloc, with, um, within the fallout of communist Eastern Europe. But this could be, be the bloody Congo, even you know, this could be somewhere in. Um, in the highlands of Vietnam, even and I, I, I took that as a as a uh, strong compliment. You know, I, th- I thought that um, that's something that I really wanted to shine through. Also, in the nature of your language, as well, very early on, Aslan, an interesting name, by the way, it's sort of a universal name. Oh, then frogs, yeah. oh, timpani of heart, just delicious, jazz all the way, such little minstrels, whores for the ears, <laughs> yeah. sort of. A variety of ways of looking at the one thing. It's not one image, it's several. The timpani, the jazz, minstrels, whores. It's, mm-hmm. again, that abundance of life is there. 
but the multiplicity mm. of imagery as well. It's earthy. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, and and that's why Aslan comes in so early because he's this multifarious, multiplicity, you know, um, very complex, multifaceted character that establishes the the macrocosm of what the narrative is trying to go on to distill later. You know, he kind of introduces the madness of uh, of all the considerations, questions, themes of of what's going on, and and that's also you know coming back to the flora and fauna that's reflected in the landscape as well of of what Aslan is talking about in regards to what's going on around him, and 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 also it's it's surprising just coming back to um, the abstraction of space and and the, this understanding of landscapes, you know where where the novel is loosely set. It's surprisingly you you will find a lot of gum trees and a lot of eucalyptus trees around there because when I was uh, realizing the book and when I was researching when I was on in the field, I was, I was, I would constantly run into gum trees. I would be able to have this familiar smell, and then I'd look up and I'd see the, um, you know, almost see a koala, but not quite. But yeah, I would, <laughs> I would, I would smell, I would smell the pepper. There's the second section, uh, hmm. which is a voyage. It's we've sort of got this backdrop of militarism, and but we're on a ship, but the ship comprises multiple peoples, states, and worlds. So again, back to this metaphorical level of reading, is this all states, all peoples on their progression through life? Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question. That's a really good point. I'm not sure, but I think uh, whatever the former world was that uh, that, is, that has imploded within this universe, it, yeah, it did comprise you know, various different peoples. It was a very cosmopolitan kind of world, but. Uh, the separatism and the ethnic conflict that has ensued in, in the first act and obviously it kind of dissolves from there. I mean, one of the lines, after the collapse, there was no background of morality anymore. Mm. This is a completely mm. dysfunctional world. Indeed, indeed, yeah. And so I'm interested in this in this absence of morality and, and what happens when morality is evacuated and... Obviously, in terms of some of the actions and some of the scenes that take place, they're you know they're morally, ethically quite dubious, even transgressive. But that that's what happens in in such a in such a collapse, such a fallout, such a flux. And you've encapsulated that in many ways in another image. You have a minstrel appearing in mm. this section, the minstrel and the toad, where he basically eviscerates. The toad, um, it's macabre, and the minstrel representing sort of entertainment, but then yeah. what he, has he to offer but suffering? Absolutely. Well, actually, that whole scene, which which is the longest scene in the book, if I remember, I think it's the longest chapter in the book because most of the chapters are quite short. They're almost episodic. It's, it's quite tight vignettes, but that one kind of goes on and on, and, and it's based on various things. It's uh, various things. It's kind of a... Uh, Appropriation of a, of a scene in um, in um, the unnameable by Beckett. It's it's an appropriation of a uh, of uh, as a Circassian myth, whereby the um, people would hire these minstrel esque entertainers to you know go around the room, go around the table, and make fun of each uh, guest that was dining with them that night. So I was I was working with those you know reference points, those 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 markers. And it was trying to encapsulate the kind of hopelessness of, of, of the men around the table. We get to the third section, Maritimo, 
um, which is a word written on a, a Nash tray, but it opens, we drive on back roads and circumnavigate Campy Deserty. Campy mm -hmm. Deserty, waste fields or empty Waste places. fields or empty place or, yeah, or, um, you know, deserted camp. It's actually, this is this is giving away a bit too much, but it's a, it's an ancient name for Mariupol, where obviously there's been some very horrible conflict. You could bring in the, the notion of what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. It, that sort mm -hmm. of pointlessness from our perspective, what is mm -hmm. taking place in Ukraine, for example, is mm -hmm. an annihilation, an obliteration. You've got the potential for great culture and purpose, and that seems to be totally eliminated, and it's wiped yeah. off the landscape. So you've got yeah. these, these two contrasts of what life really is. Absolutely, and, um, and now it's too, too real to be true. And like I said, that's, that's the reason why I, I chose to uh, use that name and, and that opening section of that third act is, is, is set there. And um, also it's, it's not just necessarily the uh, geopolitical flattening of the place because obviously this book was written much, much before um, recent events and, and the horrors and the intensities that have happened there in, in, the, in the past three months. But it's also coming down to this idea of levelling, this kind of flattening out, which happens throughout the book, both um, geographically and psychogeographically. It brings into question the whole nature of existence. Figure is basically born in the opening and living this life. What is the purpose of that life? What does it mean? How does he actually negotiate what's going on? Is it all pointless? So we're, we're getting into a sort of existential crisis here. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And um, but I hope it doesn't come come through as something that is completely nihilistic. As, as I as I said at the start, I think it is a an affirmation of life to some extent. And 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 figure does want to be alive, you know. And if not, then figure would have would have chosen to try to. Um, make another shoddy suicide attempt and is, is running on, you know, the pure grace of survival that, that keeps him going throughout. Well, there's a, a sort of urgency of life that takes mm. place and you've got references to uh, bodily fluids, shall we say, politely. <laughs> Constantly, yeah. It keeps coming forward. So life keeps coming through in a way, but in a very primitive sort of manner. As a last question then to round out the interview, I'm wondering about the title. It's it's called Basin, and I'm just trying to work out yeah. what uh, the reason for that choice. Well, it's um, it's multifaceted. It's multi-pronged. It's, you know, it's basin in terms of a basin within a landscape, within a um, basin in terms of within a body of water, within a waterway. Um, basin in terms of free basing, you know, um, smoking um, various smokable substances, uh, basin in terms of, uh, you know, going down the drain, the basin that you find in your bathroom, basin also in terms of the Donetsk basin, the Donbass. Well, it speaks then to the multiplicity of ways this novel can be read. So mm. for the listener... And the reader, the challenge is to find their own path through Scott McCulloch's novel, Basin. It's a Black Ink Books release. 
And Scott, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, David. Um, wonderful interview, wonderful questions. I'm, I'm very touched that you read it and had such a response. Well, there we are, folks. A book that requires a little patience to read and it is open to interpretation. But now, moving on to more familiar territory, Matthew Spencer's murder mystery novel. We have Black... Well, it's called Black River, but it's set on the Parramatta River and refers to one of the more elite schools that uh, abuts that uh, river, the campus thereof, and there are murders taking place. So here we go. Matthew Spencer's novel Black River is more than just a novel about a potential serial killer. It's also about how ethics can be stretched to find a murderer. So, Matthew, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Lovely to be here. We have the body of Marguerite. We have two other murders that might be linked. But it's your setting where I wish to start. A school and a river. And both of these locations have their own atmosphere and intensity. Prince Albert College. So I think we should call it for what it is, which is the King School at North Parramatta. I grew up there. Uh, my father was a teacher. So we lived on the campus, 350 acres, an old colonial estate in the middle of the metropolitan sprawl of Sydney. There's remnant bushland. There is a creek, which is a tributary of the Parramatta River that runs through the back of the place. And what I was interested in was more the geography of the, the campus or the school than the institution. But it's a bastion of privilege. So how did you fit in? Oh, look, okay. I mean, the son of teachers, we weren't privileged. Adam Bowman, the journalist in the book, has my background in that his father taught at the fictional school. The police, when they're talking to him or thinking about him, see him as part of the help, really, at a place like that. But it's everything else on campus as well. You've got extreme characters in a school. So, for example, Marguerite's father is the chaplain and you give a nod to the fundamental Anglican flavour that's going on in Sydney and New South Wales. So that's one extreme. Dr Preston, the headmaster, or they, do they call them CEOs these days? But there are political links with Preston as well. So you've got quite a range of potential suspects and extremes of being. Yeah. And there's also, of course, the sort of head of maintenance who's there. And then a family, which is, I suppose, a fictionalised version of my family. Although, of course, nothing like this ever happened to me. And the principal is, is an extreme character, and I was w wondering whether he became too extreme, but then if you look at the headlines, um, there are men who behave like him everywhere. And the other point, I think, is that the political links are, are real as well. There are people, there are federal politicians who have been to the place. John Anderson, the Deputy Prime Minister, is an old Kingsboy. And there are also people who, having been to the school, it's sort of something that remains important to them for their life. Exactly, because a school has memories for a lot of children and their development that has influenced their lives later on for good or bad. Yeah. But also then it's linked to the river and 
this is a point of access and egress, etc. The geography, and at one point there's the line, he's where his river rises. So it gives another point of access for perhaps a serial killer. Yeah, so the book opens with the murder of a girl on this campus of this school, but the police are already investigating two other murders that they know the same person has carried out. And what I was interested in was the idea of geographic profiling, which the police will do if they've got nothing else to go on and they have no DNA. And also you've got no CCTV on the river. Yeah, yeah. So it's the geographic links. And they're wondering, are these Gladesville murders linked to the school? There's a use of black plastic in all three, but otherwise... The murder at the school doesn't, might not be the same person. Uh, so then what are the links? And the links are geographic. Now, we come across, as you've already mentioned, Adam Bowman, former student, and now a journalist. But journalism is an industry under a great deal of stress at the moment. That's right. Well, this is the other point of my life that I've used to write the novel, uh, which is that I was a broadsheet newspaper journalist for 20 years, and this is what Adam Bowman is. I think broadsheet, there's only one left in the country, and the way I depict it is based in reality in that um, it, they're on, it's on its knees, really just from redundancy, because the business model has been eaten by the internet, and they haven't figured out a way of maintaining it. And Adam also has a past linked to the school. He actually lost his brother. So there are the memories I alluded to before, but he's also a bit obsessive compulsive. They're all, I think, ways of driving plot. So the idea that something's happened to him in his past, which is revealed to the reader, the police know or come to know something's happened. But what's happened and why is... It's a trope of the genre. It helps give him to flesh out his character. But I think it also, for the reader, is a mystery. And you can wonder, is what's he all about? Well, that obsessive-compulsive wiping that he's got could potentially make him a suspect. <clears throat> yeah. He enters into a sort of relationship with Strike Force satire mm. uh, because... He can get access to the policing information and also the police can use him. So we have Detective Sergeant Riley as part of this police force. But here's the interesting thing. There's very little trust between the two. Adam, in fact, does become a suspect. And the policing tactics basically go beyond ethical. I'm not sure the police in reality would actually carry on the way they do here. But I think if they're desperate, they will try things. And what they do is not too unethical, but they do push here and there where they're always thinking, if we do this how's if, and we get to court with this, how's it going to look? So they're always worried about that. And one aspect of it where they make the very late night phone call, which I won't go into too much, that's a true story which came from uh, an FBI tactic in America from uh, the book Mindhunter, where they would do that sort of thing. But I put it to a homicide detective in New South Wales, would you do that? And he was fairly certain that he wouldn't. 
But even from a, a sort of minor level, their use of Adam and the way they deploy him and use him, but at the same time never trust him. You know, it's not unethical, mm. but the interpersonal relationship is yeah. Well, they, they don't really like journalists. Now, by the end <clears throat> of the novel, and we're not going to give anything away, but the strike force actually know a certain truth about Adam's past that even Adam doesn't know himself. That gives them inordinate power, especially if you're going to write a sequel, but it also gives the reader a sort of power as well. Yeah, and poor old Adam isn't aware of this. He's floundered through the novel and um, is, in a way, left floundering at the end. I think that it that revelation which Riley comes to maybe helps her arc in the book a little bit. It might that knowledge that she now has might soften her a little bit towards Adam and then also in the eye of the reader because the book sort of unfolds over five or ten days and they're hard charging, you know. They're, they're never stopping to even breathe, really. So this at the end does maybe familiarise us a little bit with Rose and her dilemmas. And, yeah, I haven't thought of uh, the thought of the idea of resolving this in a, in a sequel. I am writing a second book, and it, it's from the point of view of Riley, the police officer. Adam hasn't appeared yet, but he still might. I'm not sure, because that's how I work. I don't know what's happening from one scene to the next. Well, it would seem there's a lot of organisation and structure going on in this book as well, because I want to get on to the forensic pathologist psychiatrist, Farquhar. There's a full moon again. Psychiopathy with paraphilic disorders, enuresis or emotional incontinence, cognitive dissonance for each individual and each suspect. So all of the people we've mentioned before could potentially be a murderer or, for that matter, a serial killer. But you've gone into the psychiatry behind all of this and the strike force sort of profile each person as they go. Um, what can you tell me about bedwetting? <laughs> uh, I use my journalism here and I interviewed a forensic psychiatrist several times and at length about the book uh, and about, for instance, the headmaster, if he was carrying on like this, what sort of person is he? What's his psychology? And the bedwetting came actually from Dr. Anthony Samuels, who I spoke to for the book, and it's related to a triad of behaviours that was born in the 60s in America called the McDonald Triad. And it's essentially saying if you, for instance, have a child that is committing arson, committing cruelty to animals, and is unintentionally wetting the bed after a certain age, it's, I can't remember, call it five or seven or whatever, those three things could predict problems. I think it's largely been discredited. But it was just an interesting thing for the psychiatrist in the book to at least raise, because he says, I've never seen it, but this theory does exist, and is that what we're looking at? But it does sort of add <clears throat> to the question of whether this profiling is in fact accurate or simply guesswork. And the, bed, the bedwetting was interesting because the psychiatrist 
psychiatrist I spoke with, but also just in my general reading, it suggests that psychopaths, it's, it's not nurture, it's nature. There is actually, if you're a psychopath, you have something wrong with you. It's a brain abnormality. And what they were suggesting to me is if you have, say, a child with delayed bladder control or another issue which might be delayed speech, something like that, then that could be pointing to a problem in, in the brain. Well, if the listener wants to find out what the problems are, if it is in fact a serial killer, what is actually happening in Prince Albert College and whether Adam is in fact a, a bedwetter or not, they actually need to read Black River by Matthew Spencer and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So Matthew, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Lovely.